0: It's the podcast. It's the Two Shot Podcast. I'm Craig Parkinson, and and you're you, and you're here. Thank you so much for downloading and subscribing. Um, It really means the world. So, this is episode 46. And it's a good one. You know what it is. Are you ready? It's Mr. Adrian Dunbar. I know. It's exciting, right? So, the thing is... Since I started it, AD is always, always on my list, and I know that uh, listeners have always said, when are you getting Adrian Dunbar on? So let me tell you, when I first started the podcast, I emailed a few people, AD was one of them, and I emailed AD, I said, look, I'd love you to come on this podcast that I'm starting, and we can have a natter, and it'd be really great, um, and I didn't hear anything. So I worried and go, oh, God, he's not into it. And then he hasn't replied to me. That's not like him. And then, excuse me, I bumped into him in London with a few other friends. And uh, he mentioned about the podcast, because it was already up and running by then. I said, did you you not get my email? Uh, And he said, what? I said, well, I want you to come on. He said, I think he didn't get the email, everyone. So we sorted it out. We met in London. We, it was a beautiful sunny day. It was just before the BAFTA Awards, uh, which he was quite rightly nominated for. And we met in Maison Bateau. We went down to the basement and we hit record. And this is it. I think you're going to really love it. This is episode 46 of the Two Shot Podcast with the fantastic Adrian Dunbar. Enjoy, and I'll see you at the end. You're looking very well, I must say. Thanks, mate. Trying your oh. best, you know. <laughs> so this has been a long time coming. Adrian Dumbo on the podcast. Because yeah. when I first started, obviously, you were on my list. Yeah, yeah. And then I emailed you, and then I didn't hear from you. I thought, oh, my God. Yeah. What have I done? i have upset. No. You don't want to come on. And obviously, it got just got lost. But now you're here. Now I'm here. Good. And... I want to kick off, I don't really talk about jobs like loads that much, because it yeah. can be a bit boring, but I have yeah. to say congratulations for the BAFTA nomination. Thank you very much. Craig. yeah. Know. I'm we're delighted. All, we're all very proud.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm delighted. And I'm delighted the show's got so much, uh, a lot of attention this year. I think it's got about four or five nominations, yeah. which is great. And uh, we've been kind of waiting on that, you know, for, for a while.
0: Yeah, it's been a long time coming, I think. Someone's having a sneezing fit upstairs. Don't let that put you off. Enniskillen, <laughs> tell me about yeah. growing up there. Yeah. All right, we had a, a brief pause there, but we can always pick it back up. Yeah. And I want to go back to, to the start in Enniskillen, yeah. in, in which is, yeah. that's where you were born, right?
1: Yeah, I was born in Enniskillen, uh, Beautiful town fabulous, beautiful island town. It was a great place to grow up as a kid, you know, uh, a lot of fishing on the boats on the lake. And uh, it was a very kind of, it was a nice time because it, 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 it was Northern Ireland. It was very, it was very mixed. It was, uh, I lived in a housing estate that was mixed, Catholic and Protestant. And, uh, you know, there didn't seem to be any trouble at that point uh, with what was happening. Uh, but that's only because probably I was a kid and I didn't really notice any of that stuff. Um, but there was agitation going on obviously, but for for a kid growing up there, it was amazing. We had you know up the swimming and our mates, and we could get out into the country and the coast was close in the summer and it really was a kind of a halcyon place to grow up a large yeah. family as well I mean a big family I had uh, four sisters and two brothers, and uh, you know so uh, so yeah, plenty of uh, Plenty of interaction, plenty of, uh, you know, plenty of fun.
0: Happy household, Eddie.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, everything was, everything was all, you know, very poor, but, uh, you know, but nobody, but nobody had any money. So, you know, you didn't really notice any of that. And, uh, you know, my father was a carpenter and my mother went out to work and, uh, you know, we, you know, we fitted into the, we had our community and it was uh, lovely people around us and
0: uncles and aunties and it was great.
1: Yeah, really good.
0: He did Dad enjoy his work as a carpenter?
1: He did. And, uh, you know, he came from a place called Porter Down in County Armagh. Yeah. And his family were, were four, nearly five generations of carpenters. So uh, we've traced that back. Uh, so uh, carpentry and working with wood was always in the family, you know. Except, of course, when it came to me. And. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can remember my mother and my uh, my auntie Evelyn standing at the kind of the door, uh, the, the kitchen door of our old house in Castle Street, and my brother John was sort of happily knocking up a kind of medieval castle out of wood or something like that, and I was when he was about eight, and uh, they were kind of looking at me and they were saying, "Oh God, what's going to happen to that child there because he has no hands." That's how they used to say, he had no hands. Not that I knew what that meant at the time, but basically they were saying, how is he going to learn a trade if he can't, you know, you know, hold a, a saw or, you know. A chisel. A chisel or whatever. But anyway, that was it. And uh, my father was a carpenter and uh, he then became a, a foreman, foreman on sites, He worked for a... For a lot of the bigger companies like langs and people like that he was uh he was great shutter joiner which means building shapes wooden shapes for con- pouring concrete into and in fact he he worked on any of the bridges that were happening around the the, the county and uh, the main bridge that was the last bridge that was built in inniskill and he worked he was a foreman, foreman on that and uh uh, so he died when he was about fifty. So that was that's the biggest thing that happened to our family. The fa- you know, w- w- when a parent dies, that's it, isn't it? I mean, for every family, uh, you know, when your parent, a parent dies, that's the biggest thing that happens. So I was uh, at drama school at that point, and uh, I was twenty-one, I think. So it was really, really difficult for my sisters of course my younger sisters in particular and of course with my mother but uh she had to pick things up i suppose and just you know keep going there was nothing for it but um i suppose going back um you know i school was all right i had a good time at school Uh, you know i wasn't really any good at exams or anything like that i somehow when it came to doing exams. <clears throat> not that I froze, it's just that I find it very difficult to understand the questions a lot of the time. You know, it was a very strange thing. It was I don't know whether it was kind of a dile- dyslexic thing or not, but I always find it difficult to, to understand what it was exactly they were asking me.
0: Are you dyslexic, Andy?
1: I don't think. No, I'm no. not. No, I'm not. I don't have any problem. But s- somehow the... Uh, the uh, the questions always seemed to kind I of think, well, what what angle are they coming from on this? What is it they want from me? Anyway, it was a it was a confusion that lasted kind of most of my life, and uh, so I uh, I didn't go to the grammar school. I went to the secondary school, and uh, and at one point then, about 1969, we decided uh, because of work really from my father, we moved to uh, Portadown. Back to his hometown, right? Which was probably the, you know a really bad decision because at that point, of course, Bloody Sunday happened and Derry happened. And Portadown, unlike Inniskillen, wasn't a liberal type of town. Uh, the Catholics then were forced into a sort of ghetto in the northwest corner of the town, a place called the the Tunnel and the Gervahi Road and Drum Cree and which later on became quite famous. But through the early 70s, it was a very dangerous kind of place to be, and there was a lot of rioting and a lot of, you know, we saw a lot of, there was a lot of action uh, in the streets and a lot of uh, violence. So we kind of suffered that for a while, and uh, there were times, you know, where we'd, ha- we'd have to be bundled into the car late at night and kind of brought back to an because things were getting too rough but um, but after that, we got back to Inneskillen. And that was like being let out of jail, really, because we were back somewhere that, you know, you could walk up the main street of the town and, you know, you weren't afraid that somebody was going to kind of pick on you because of the school uniform you were wearing. Yeah. Because there was a lot of sectarianism in, in Portadown. So Inneskillen was great. We were back there and... You know, it was there that I got into music. I started getting into... Oh, it was music um, first, was it? Yeah, yeah, it was music first, you know, playing in bands and stuff. I started a little three-piece country band with two mates of mine. And we'd travel around to these little kind of pubs and lounges. And we were a bit of a novelty because we were only like 16 or 17. What were you playing? I was playing bass guitar and singing. And we had drums and, uh, and rhythm. My mate Finton was on rhythm, and Tony was on the on the drums. Tony's brother Christy drove us about. Uh, we were called the Breeze, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, at least we weren't a rock band called Glad Stallion or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so there we were, and uh, we I was doing that, and while, and while I was doing that, then. One day I was stopped by this uh, little guy called Vincent Donegan and he said to me, uh, are you free tonight to play? Because he knew I played bass guitar. So I said, yeah, yeah, okay. And it was a guy called Frank Chisholm who was an Elvis Presley impersonator who had a proper big grown-up band. And um, so I kind of joined this cabaret outfit which was kind of a step up to another level playing bigger places and that. But, you know, I really wasn't up to it musically. And had to kind of learn really quickly on the hoof how to play lots of these different runs and riffs, and I was so bad. I think the first night that the lead guitarist left the band, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, but it was I stuck with it. And at the same time, as as doing that and kind of not really concentrating on school at all because I thought, you know, this is going to be great. I'm going to have a career. I'm going to be doing something in music and. I'd left school then and I had this job in the abattoir <clears throat> which paid really good money. What we did in the abattoir? Well in the abattoir well you know it was a, it was an abattoir that killed pigs. So I did I was two years there all told and within the second year I was uh, playing with the band as well. And so I was earning about eighty five quid a week, which was a really lot of money at the time seventy eight or whatever it was in uh, with the uh, in the factory, you know where they killed about three or four hundred pigs a day and then I was going out two or three nights a week and playing with a band, and I was getting twenty five pounds a night. So I was earning, you know, for the time, I was earning a lot of money. I was earning actually nearly as much money, if not more, than my dad, you know. And I was kind of handing, giving money over to the house and so forth. So anyhow, uh, whilst I was... I mean, we went to the States, you know, with this guy. We played in the Bronx in 1979. Did he? How was that? Yeah, I was absolutely nuts. I mean... um, you know, there was all kinds of stuff. I mean, New York in 1979 was an extremely dangerous place. When I go back to New York now and I'm talking to people and I say, yeah, I was here in the summer of 1979, they all kind of, their jaws drop. And they go, oh my God, what? Are you, where were you? And I say... Well, I was on the Fordham Road in the Bronx, and then their jaws dropped further, you know. God. Because it it literally was, you know, extremely dangerous. Uh, Rather like, sadly, London is getting at the moment where there's a lot of random uh, acts of violence happening on the street.
0: Yeah.
1: But um, one of the things that happened to me was, when I was there, was, you know, the the guys, they they were very happy hanging around the bars and kind of, you know, in in the Bronx. But, of course, I wanted to get into... uh, I wanted to go into New York. I wanted to see what was going on. And somebody told me that uh, there were all these free... Dr. Pepper had these free concerts up in Central Park. So anyway, down to Central Park. And I was there one day. And this guy comes up to me. This, uh, you know, um, a a, a sort of... A black entrepreneur from uh, Harlem approached me, shall we say. And he said... uh, (laughs) He said, you know, uh, you're a tourist, right? And I went, yeah, that's right. He said, you want to earn some money? And uh, I said, yeah, yeah, okay. He he said, where are you from? I said, I'm from Ireland. He said, okay, Irish, you meet me here Wednesday night. He said, "Uh, James Taylor is playing in the park. We're going to sell some T-shirts. I went, Okay. So Wednesday night, I get down there. Whatever night it was, I was free because we were working quite a bit. I mean, it really was a tough gig. You know, you start at 9 o'clock and you finish at 3 in the morning. That was the gig for God. the, you know, 45-minute sets. So everybody was doing everything. But anyway, I showed up this night. <clears throat> I thought, this is like, you know, a real, you know, will this happen or not? Anyway, this guy shows up with one of those huge mail bags. Yeah. You know, okay, Irish, you take this uh, mailbag, and you know we head in t- into the park and sure enough, you know there are all these thousands of kind of folkies and uh they're all wearing kind of check shirts and oh gosh big gosh, dungarees and they've got long hair and you know there's a lot of smell of various substances in the air, and all that's going on and there's <laughs> This guy jumps up on a rock in the middle of all these people and he goes, okay, Irish, hit me with a T-shirt. So I pull one of these T-shirts out of the bag and I throw it up to him and he, and he rips off the plastic. He goes, he goes, okay, everybody, check it out. In gothic print, on the front, shoot the fucking Bee Gees. On the back, disco sucks. Check it out, $1.50, you know? all yeah, of one of those. You know, it was like kind of... It was like, what the hell's going on here? And uh, so... So that was one of the experiences. I had many experiences. Some of them were scary as well. But it was an amazing uh, time to be in, uh, in New York because of all that. Because, but, you know, on the radio every day there was more reports about, you know, rapes and murders and stabbings. And it really was a, it really was a scary but a very vital place, of course. And uh, it was a great experience yeah. uh, in many respects. But when I got back then to Ineskilling from that particular trip, um, my cousin, Amelda, who's sadly not with us anymore. She was involved and there's always a big amateur dramatic, uh, you know, uh, scene in all the Irish towns, all yeah. the small Irish towns. You probably know yourself, yeah. Greg. And, uh, so uh, there was a big amateur scene and my cousin was involved with the St. Michael's Amateur Dramatic Society and she asked me would I come along and give them a hand with uh, a guy called Marty Quinn, a hand with the lights because they were going to Bally Shannon for a festival. So they were doing this incredibly crazy American play called, um, uh, what was it called? Uh, the Effect of Gamma Rays in Man... No, The Effect of Gamma Rays on Man in the Moon Marigolds. It's a good title. It's a fantastic title. And it's actually a really extraordinary American play about... Uh, it's about... Uh, it's monologues about these these women. I must dig it out, actually. Anyway, I, I went and I said my cousin was in it and a friend of ours was in it. And I helped Marty with the lights. And, you know, and I, and I really liked the people you know, they all seem to be from all kind of different places and all different ages, and yet they all seem to be kind of hanging around this one thing and this kind of, this amateur, this love, which is what amateur means, the love of something, the love of the theatre. And uh, I kind of liked them and they had a sense of humour and they were funny and they were kind. And I thought, oh, this isn't interesting. And I remember years later reading a thing that Kurt Vonnegut said about that all of us are born into one family, but ultimately we're looking for another family that we belong to. And some of us are kind of lucky if we find it. And I kind of got a sniff at that point that maybe this is the the family that I really belong to, maybe the music, anyway. A lot of people, uh, you know, the next thing was next year they had another play and there was a part and they offered me to play this part. And I said, yeah, of course, you know, at that age you don't think about stuff and, uh, you know, you learn your speech and all the rest of it and then you do it and as you're doing it in front of audiences you start to get a feel of what that kind of performance thing is like. And, uh, you know, afterwards, you know, people say, you know, you really could think about, uh, you know, maybe auditioning for a drama school, which was, you know, completely off the, the wall as far as I was concerned. But anyway, I was still playing with the band, but... Lucky for me, there were a couple of people there who really thought that I should do it. And they got me a form and they helped me fill it out and they sent it off and they got me this audition in London for the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, which I'd never heard of. And um, But there were a very kind old couple in the town called Pat and Neville Fleming and their son had gone to the Guildhall and they were always talking about the Guildhall. And um, so, you know, I... We sent it off. I got this audition. I went to the guys in the band, and of course, you know, like <laughs> being bands, not the way. Well, you know, if you're going off to London, you're going to do this, and you're going to, you know, I don't know whether we're able to keep your place in the band. And I went, oh God, all right then. <laughs> so off I went, knowing that I hadn't got my job in the band when I came back, and uh, and I went and I did this. Um, I did, uh, you know, the first kind of. It, it, well, it was it was a crazy time because a film called Fame had just come out, and like it, it looked like everybody in his granny wanted to be in uh, wanted to be in drama school because <laughs> there was thousands of people show. I mean, there was thousands, literally thousands of people. Anyway, you know they were taking like sixty people at a time and rushing them through things, and you'd get through that bit, and then you know there was a one day thing where you, they went, you know, and then I had to find somewhere to stay because I hadn't really worked it out. So I I got the Evening Standard and I found myself. Uh, going down to Russell Square and um, I remember there was a guy standing smoking a cigarette at the door of this uh, hotel down there and this young French guy and I thought what's he doing smoking a cigarette you know he's supposed to be greeting people at the door here (laughs) so I went in and uh, said you know I'm come from that night porter's job and they said no it's gone I said who's that fellow out there the one who's smoking a cigarette out there and it was an old Irish woman I remember who was on the thing and she went yeah you're right Maurice (laughs) <laughs> so she called him in, and she went, Maurice. Look, I don't think we're going to need you tomorrow. And she said to me, Look, don't worry about it. He's from an agency. He'll get another job tomorrow. Can you start? And I went, Yeah, great. So I got myself the job. Brilliant. Had to hang around for a couple of weeks to find out was I getting into uh, was I getting into the weekend bit, which was the final bit. Anyway, I get into the. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm rattling away here, Craig. Is uh, all right? I, do you
0: know what it is? I don't want to inter- interrupt <laughs> you because this is all absolutely brilliant. Okay, please carry on. I'll just rattle away. No, it's fantastic. Mate. Uh,
1: so I get into I, I get into the weekend one, which is only sixty people, which is incredible out of all these thousands. So I'm there with sixty people, and they've got to get those sixty people down to twenty. So and we all know that. So the stress over the weekend is a nightmare. <laughs> Uh, so we, we do... All, I mean, and I'm still doing the speech. That speech that I learned for that play is the thing that kind of got me through. Um, <clears throat> it's from a play called The Scatterin by a guy called Heno McGee, who only wrote one play. Right. And it was about set in Ireland in the 1950s. But anyway, so we do the, the first day. <clears throat> and, at the, and then we do the second day, and there's less of us there. And on the second day, this. One of the third years, I think, says, oh, there's a party in Hackney tonight. Do any of you want to come? Now, you know, it wouldn't be a really good idea if you're you you're know, if you're doing a weekend trying to get into drama school to head off to a party on the Saturday night. But, of course, I decided, and this other guy who was with me decided that we were both going to go to this party. Now, the other guy was this... He was younger than me, and he was, he was a bit nuts, and his name was Neil, right? <laughs> And you know, so Neil Morrissey was yeah. his name. And uh, so never heard of him. Never heard of him. So me, me, and Neil headed off to this party. Somebody tried. We we drunk too much mulled wine. Somebody tried to kiss Neil. He nodded them. That made a huge thing happen. Then there was a very sweet but quite large girl who dragged Neil upstairs to a to bedroom. I passed out under a load of coats and woke up with two people trying to, you know, do something on top of me about six hours later. And Neil woke up, <laughs> managed to get a shower. The two of us were in bits, but at least he woke me up and the two of us headed off together for the last day. And we went through all the very fine... They, they got it down to singing, dancing. They got it down to kind of, you know, all kinds of very fine things eventually. And they decided, and then guess what, we all... They said, You're, you've all got in, and we just all kind of went nuts. We must have lost about, you know, at least three or four pounds of weight over that weekend. It was so stressful, but the relief was so great. So therefore, I could go back to on and I got myself a little summer job, which was amazing. And knowing that I was going to go to this incredible place, and it was 1980, and... Um, just had a drop of coffee there. It was 19, uh, that was 1979, and uh, so it was 1980 when we were arriving. And, um, you know, it was such a relief to get away from the stress of Northern Ireland for a start. And then to arrive into the city of London was absolutely extraordinary. I mean, you know, here was somewhere where I'd, I'd known about all my life. I'd known quite a bit about, you know... Uh, The city itself, I was always interested in history. So to be dropped into the city of London was, like, kind of unbelievable. You know, the Barbican, being in the middle of the Barbican Centre, you know, you've got the Roman ruins, you've got London Wall, you've got Liverpool Street, you've got Spitalfields Markets, you know, you've got Gun Gun Row, you've got all this kind of absolutely incredible stuff lying around. And we were all down in, uh, you know, I was living down in... uh, I hadn't anywhere to stay stay when I arrived, of course. And, uh, you know, I had a couple of nights then with somebody who I knew, I think. I'm not quite sure. But very quickly, there was a guy who was in the second year uh, who I immediately became friends with. I mean, everybody was really worried about me and him meeting because, uh, you know, his name was Charlie Lawson. And who, you know, later and, you know, has gone on to be famous as Jim McDonald in Coronation Street. But Charlie was really kind to me because he had decided to drop all his kind of posturing as a kind of, uh, you
0: know, <laughs> you know <laughs> uh,
1: as a loyalist. And, uh, you know, he believes in, all, in that and I have to respect him for his beliefs. But he, but he was very kind to me, Charlie. And he had a, he had a room and there was, he was living with a guy called Spike. And he got me into the flat that he was staying in, on, you know, on the 19th floor down in the Isle of Dogs. So I lived in the Isle of Dogs for a while with Charlie, and that was great. And, you know, kicked off in drama school that, you know, first year with all these fabulous young people from all over the, you know, the place, you know, from Stoke and from Edinburgh and from Cardiff and from, you know. You know, they, in drama schools, it's a really good idea to get people from all over the place, uh, you know, so they can learn from one another, put, yeah. a, put an interesting class together, you know. Exactly. And uh, so we had people from everywhere and it was really wonderful. And, uh, you know, we were all fit and young and healthy and, you know, I used to walk down the street with the girls and wonder why all these businessmen were staring at us. And then you realise that, you know, the girls you were with were all so beautiful and, uh, you know, it doesn't cross your mind sometimes until <laughs> you get into a pub and uh, so, uh, yeah, it was great. I think that first year at drama school was like one of the happiest years of my life, easily. And um,
0: did you bond very quickly altogether? Yeah,
1: we bonded very quickly. Um, you know, uh, n- you know, not 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 all of us, of course. We didn't bond uh, collectively, of course. We bonded, and then we eventually kind of found out where our little kind of groups were, and that you know, and who we were going to, you know, there was. Who we were going to hang out with. Uh, And then we started having girlfriends and boyfriends and, you know, people started pairing up and, uh, you know, that that kind of thing happened. And I, in the second year, I kind of, um, at the start of the second year, I uh, was in a relationship, you know, as such. I had a girlfriend called Anat, Anat Topol, who was the daughter of Hein Topol, who uh, who played Fiddler on the Roof in the film. And uh she was a lovely girl in that. I still see her. She lives in Los Angeles. She has three kids and uh I, I, I when I go to Los Angeles I still see her Nat and hang out with her, you know.
0: Well, that's amazing that you've kept yeah. that connection.
1: Yeah, yeah. I've kept that uh, kept all those I've kept loads of connections from that absolute period. There's four or five people I still see, including Neil and my friend Claire and so uh yeah, so You know, that was... uh, Sadly, though, it was in that year that my my father died. And, um, you know, I had to head back. And it was a very painful, difficult time. My brother John, who was working here in London in the post office, decided that he was going to go home. And, you know, I had to make a hard decision. You know, was I going to go home? Try and earn some money at home? help the family help my mother etc or was i going to stay and i just thought to myself you know what i'm i'm going to have to finish this course i haven't you know i haven't come here i haven't burnt my bridges with everybody you know you know my father was so delighted and happy that i got into drama school you know this is a chance for me to kind of you know have a career rather than to to drop you know, to stop it and go back and, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> so I decided I was going to have to stay. And uh, towards the end of that year, I got myself a job uh, back in Belfast. They, were, they, they wanted in uh, in, a, in a new play by uh, a writer called Graham Reed.
0: Was this after you graduated? This is
1: before. Oh, before. Um, before I graduated. The Guildhall had no problem in allowing you to go because at those stages, of course, at those days, you had to have an equity card. And one of the hardest things to do is to get the equity card when you come out of drama school. So if one of the students got picked up for an ad, <clears throat> say, or, or even to do some pantomime yeah, or, you know, outside school time or even inside school time, if they were going to get an equity card out of it, the school quite wisely didn't stand in their way. So they allowed me to, to go and do, and I actually ended up doing two plays. I did a play in Belfast at the Lyric which was very successful, and then I did another play off the back of that uh, in the tricycle. So it meant that I had missed a bit towards the end of it, and that meant that when I hit third year, I was sort of out of the loop with the teachers and so forth. And at that time coming in third year, you're always looking to get parts. Yeah. Because, you you know, they're inviting people to come. And I didn't get any good parts because sometimes because I was just out of the loop and I'd gone, I'd got my equity card. I'd done that. So the third year was a bit of a, it was a bit difficult for me, the third year in that respect, uh, because I came and did a couple of things. uh, But it was like kind of winding down. I'd already got my uh, equity card. You know, the teachers would sort of say to me, oh, we're not worried about you. You're going to be OK. And in fact, you know, you have to recognize that that time as well, Craig, there was a hell of a lot of really good writers in in Ireland and in Northern Ireland. There was a lot of really good plays being done. There was a a lot of really good. I mean, it was a good place to be from. Yeah. in, In the 1980s. And you know, I don't have to tell you. You know, I'm sure uh, Susan will, uh, will confirm this. There was so so much kind of stuff around that uh, it was it was actually a good place to come from because uh, of the body of work that was and the body of good work that was coming out of there. That more importantly, yeah. So I very quickly uh, I went back to back to Belfast, uh, where I knew there would be work for me. Uh, where I sensed it, I didn't decide to stay in London because you know, you know. I you know, I'd look around; there were just too many good young London actors, you know, yeah. <laughs> were, you know. And when you're young, you get cast a type. I mean, who's going? You know, nobody's going to take a chance on you to do something else. And so you
0: go where the work is. You go where the work is. So oh. you
1: usually, you know, wherever you're from, you know, you head back. Yeah, and uh, you know, because that's where you're going to get picked up and working and so forth. So back to Belfast, and I spent about. I suppose, a year or so there, doing bits and pieces, bits of telly and bits of radio and play, and an odd play. And then I did something on the telly that was quite good, and uh, I wrote to an agent in, in London here who was just starting off, and he was working with an agency called Larry Dalzell. He was a guy called Michael Foster, who became quite famous yeah. as an agent. You know, he's not an agent anymore, but... Michael took me on, and he had a whole bunch of people at the time, like Hugh Grant and, you know, Sean Bean. And, you know, these are people I knew. I knew Sean quite well from, uh, you know, running into him here and there. And uh, so suddenly I was back in London, and uh, I started working at uh, places like the Royal Court, and uh, we did quite a famous Bond season there with kind of Gary Oldman and... uh, and uh, with Danny Boyle directing, and, you know, that was quite... Uh, I mean, they, those were
0: incredible times. I mean, th- there's lots of incredible times, but those specific at the Royal Court were very exciting times. Did you feel that when you were there, what you were doing was something special?
1: Yes, well, I, I think anybody who... Certainly at that point, when Max Stanford-Clark was there, Max was able to kind of give it a kind of focus, I think, that was very, very special, and, and, and made you feel that you were involved in important work. And of course, the, the the Royal Court has gone on to you know, previous to that and after that has you know always been turning up the really interesting plays. I yeah. remember, <clears throat> I remember meeting Andrea Dunbar there, for example. You know, Did, yeah, yeah, wow. And uh, you know, we, we'd meet Anne Devlin and all these really interesting women writers who had just coming along at that period, and uh, you know. There were the the actors were just great, and the plays were just great, and you know you're in the King's Road, and you really had a feeling. We there really was that feeling that that we were at the center of something, you know. You Gary Oldman, Leslie Manville, Joanne Wally you know, all on the same stage together, God. you know, and uh, it it was extraordinary. And and then the directors were so good, you know, the likes of Mike Stafford, Clark, and Danny Boyle. Simon Curtis was there. Um, uh, And the plays were were extraordinary as well. So, you know, to be with the English Theatre Company at that point was really, you know, extraordinary. It was brilliant. uh, (laughs) And, uh, you know, you didn't have much money and uh, you weren't paid a hell of a lot, but it was all very fair and equitable, you know. and, uh, And then, you know on things went from there you know you just your career develops you get a bit of telly you do a bit of a series you're you constantly play. learning from
0: job yeah, to job yeah yeah
1: learning from job to job learning from older actors all the time learning to be still learning to speak clearly learning you know all that kind of you know basic stuff that you learn that's important and yeah. uh and so that's kind of basically how it all kind of oh, my career is such un- unraveled and kind of off you went and then you know you have your kind of, you have your ups and downs and careers, you know, and things happen to you, and you, you know, you get married, and children come along, you know, all those life then kind of comes into. You think, you know, and
0: priorities change. Priorities
1: right? change, and you know, you've got to earn money, and then you know, or you get disillusioned. You know, there was a point in the night in in my thirties uh, when I was doing a huge amount of TV. But I just got kind of disillusioned with it because it wasn't, you know, the, we didn't have a lot of channels. So, you know, you could be paid really well. And the, the product you were turning out when a lot of us were looking at it was, you know, it wasn't that great a lot of the time. You know, it wasn't. Uh, Did you feel unfulfilled? Yeah, well, you just, uh, you, you know, you, <clears throat> I, I felt frustrated that, um, you know, we'd gather all these great people together and the scripts, you know, when you compare them to the kind of golden age that we're in now of uh, British TV drama, which is extraordinary really yeah. to be part of it. It's a bit of a privilege really. Uh you know, the the standards were so much lower then in many respects, you know. And uh and excellent actors, you know, brilliant actors trying to make the best of, of what was happening, but you know, the standards wasn't as high you know what we were expecting out of a drama was so much lower really than uh and tv was very ploddy you know it was very kind of you know the car pulls up they get out of the car they walk to the door they knock the door the doors open you see them inside you know there would be kind of there would be kind of seconds wasted of kind of precious screen time on the kind of you know you know, trying to be, you know, not to be a movie, if you like, where we don't use that kind of language in films. You know, we yeah. cut hard cut in films. You know, we, we allow our audience to imagine, yet, yet now they're inside. You didn't need to see them in the lift, you know. Whereas telly is kind of, at that point, was really kind of deliberate and kind of... Uh, so, <clears throat> so the language was different. You know, the actors were good. There was a lot more time to do things. And, you know... I kind of got disillusioned with that because I trained, after all, to be in the theatre. You, you don't get trained to be on TV. No.
0: There's
1: a lot of these courses at the moment, spurious courses, I think, acting for television. There is only one kind of acting, and it's called acting for the theatre. And then beyond that, then, you, you turn the dial and you start to learn how to do the other things, the, the camera work. Yeah. But, you know, you need to learn how to be honest big first. You know on a stage using your voice that you know using the full length of your body you know as as a way of people understanding you know what it is you're feeling and uh, so that's what you're taught in drama school and you know after you've kind of had you know you you know you've had to kind of go in and you're standing around to do two lines and you know it's just it's unfulfilling that you can't put a performance together and of course the live gig i was used to the live gig i was used to performing with a band i was used to the live gig performance is where it's at and in fact it's the only thing that really interests us as audiences we're not interested in the in the director's take on something we're not interested in that what we're interested in is an actor performing something that's really exciting that we that draws us in and excites us. Yeah. So I was really interested in getting back to performance. So I kind of got a bit disillusioned with telly in my kind of mid thirties and was searching for another way to, another way of, you know, get back to the theatre, get back to the live gig. Um, Jim Norton, you know, he he said to me one time, he said, look, look, he said, any actor, you know, as an actor, you need to scare yourself at least once a year. You know, you need to actually get that adrenaline going, you know, get in the car, take it down a country road at 200 miles an hour, really, you know, put the fear of God into yourself. Get out there, perform, get on the stage. That's what, you know, that's what I trained for. Three years of training to be able to kind of stand up, breathe deep and talk very loud um, for people to to understand what you were saying. So I I kind of... uh, I kind of tried to get back into the theatre at that point and then I started looking at writing and then I did a play actually for the Royal Court up in Liverpool and I met uh, a guy from Blackpool called, well, Lytham really, but but Blackpool I think, they were originally lived in Blackpool called cool Peter, Peter Chelsum <clears throat> And Peter and I hit it off. He was very funny. He got that typical, you know, Lancashire where all the great comic geniuses come from. He had all that stuff going down. So he, he and I uh, hit it off. And then he came to me one day and said he had this, uh, he'd been pushed to, uh, to talk to the BBC. And they wanted, he'd done a really interesting short with Stephen Tompkinson. Uh, called treacle really funny funny bizarre real blackpool centric you know great great short film and uh he said uh, he asked me how about did i ever hear a guy called joseph Locke?" well i did joseph Locke was a tenor my father had bought his uh lps and so forth and we'd listen to them and he was a real he'd, he'd been in in a during the war and all this kind of thing i said yeah i know so anyway he said, would you like to... I don't know why he thought we could do this. I suppose because we had the same sense of humour. Because if you're going to work with somebody, you kind of need to have the same sense of humour, especially if you're going to write a comedy. Yeah. So we sat down and we wrote this comedy called Hear My Song. It took us about, you know, in our spare time, it took us about, you know, three or four months. Is that all? Or, yeah, maybe Well, maybe a bit longer than that, actually. When did I you think write about
0: together it. in the same room? Or? Yeah, we
1: did. Yeah, I used to go and visit him. He had a nice, uh, he had a nice place in Hampstead. I used to go up to Hampstead and uh, Pete and I would, you know, go for a pint in the flask and then, you know, or maybe we'd write and then go for a pint in the flask. That's more like it. And uh, so uh, we got it together and, you know, it was a time, it was an interesting time because a lot of people, Channel 4 in particular, were doing a lot of issue movies. People were, you know, there was movies about AIDS and movies about race and movies about really good movies. Yeah. But there were, they, they had issues at the, and nobody was really interested in comedy at the time. So I think we arrived at the right time with a comedy and uh, kind of mad comedy. And, uh, and you know, very quickly, uh, you know, we went to Limelight uh, at that point and we had uh, we met this girl who's gone on to be a fabulous producer called Alison Owen. So that was Alison's first big gig. And, uh, you know, suddenly this film was, was up and running. We found this incredible young actress called Tara Fitzgerald who's just out of drama school and, and this other young Northern Irish actor called Jimmy Nesbitt <laughs> that Pete had seen at uh, a drama centre. And, uh, you know, and we and then we've got David McCallum who was a real hero of ours and the man from Uncle in yeah. the 60s and then we unbelievably got Ned Beatty. And uh, suddenly we're doing this film and we went and we did it we shot it in Ireland and uh, and a bit in Liverpool, and uh, it was a huge success. It was picked up by Miramax and we went to the states. And uh, you know, I think Ned got a Golden Globe. I'm not sure. Maybe he didn't. But we were at the Golden Globe, I remember that. And uh, but uh, you know, so that was that was great. In the midst of all that, I started to write. Basically, you know, that got me writing. And I'd, I'd been writing bits and pieces before. And uh, so since then I've been writing. I've, ri- I've written a number of scripts and, and sadly not, none of them have been done because it's really difficult. And what you realise after a while at the moment that it's, it's such a slog to try and get a, a, a low-budget film off the ground that most people are forgetting about that now and they're just heading straight into TV. Yeah. Because television's of such a high standard at the moment. You can, you know... So to that extent, I've uh, I've been writing. I've been writing with uh, you know a TV series in mind, uh, with uh, with Jed Jed Mercurio, who's uh, who, who'll exec produce. But I, I've I've produced a kind of you know a first episode of something, and I've got my fingers crossed that that might come off. But w- I don't know yet.
0: Do you enjoy Obviously. the writing process, I do.
1: I do like I do like writing, you know. Um, it's an interesting uh, process is the word, I think. It's, uh, you know, just recently I worked with Conor McPherson. I did a play of his called The Night Alive, uh, which was really, really fun to do. And, uh, and I asked Conor, I said, how, how, how do you write, Conor? You know, because I thought, you know, from writing here my song, Pete and I, we got together and we, we, we did so much prep. Before we st- sat down, you know, we got the photographs, we got the music, we got all the kind of things that we thought were pertinent, for, you know, and we'd make notes and we just, anything occurred to us, we'd put it down on cards for scenes, you know, things that, you know, you have in your head that you think might happen at some point in the film. So you put all those together before you actually sit uh, sit down. And then we just followed the template, which is, you know, you write a two-page treatment of what you think the story is and then you expand that into a 24 page more detailed synopsis of the whole thing sorry that's the wrong way around first of all you do a two-page synopsis then you do a 24 page treatment right and after 24 page treatment then you write your 90 to 120 page script so we had done all that but i said to connor <clears throat> how do you how, how do you work connor and he says oh i don't know he said uh I just sit down at the, at the computer, he says, and I, I hear these people talking in my head and I just start writing it down, which to me was just like crazy. You know? <laughs> How, you know, what, you just These people start talking in your head and you just start. And then, of course, I realized that, you know, stories are in there all the time. The, the stories are gestating in your head all the time. You're thinking about things all the time. And if you do just sit down, sometimes they just come out. And so if you have an idea in your head that, uh, you know, a very simple idea that, you know, there's a guy and he's lost his wife and he's done and the kids are here. And, the, you know, those things in you know, the basic bones of a story line that's in your head. Sometimes if you sit down, you just start stuff comes out. Yeah. You know, it can work like that. And uh, <clears throat> so just recently I started to just thought, right, you know, I'm not going to, you know, kill myself trying to absolutely cross the t's and dots the i's on this i don't really know where it's going Allow myself the freedom mm. and then i talk to other writers now novelists and apparently that's what they do all that they just head off yeah they just set off on this journey in their head and you know what it's a much more exciting thing than kind of doing all the prep because but on the other hand comedies are much are more difficult than anything else absolutely you know and and not a lot of people would would understand would understand that the 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 whole the mechanics of making people laugh is so fine uh you know you can you know it's a, it's a whole different ball game than else. of anything, course everybody's then, yes.
0: taste for comedy is so different you know yeah. what what my parents would laugh at i i, I wouldn't certainly wouldn't laugh at or, you know we all have different tastes of that whereas drama people can go along for the ride yeah
1: yeah, exactly, exactly. Drama, drama, we kind of know, you know, yeah, exactly. You see, But we were writing a comedy, and I, I think we did it the right way. I think we, we realised that certain things and rules had to be adhered to if we were going to get it right. And, uh, and as I say, the film was successful. People laughed at it, which was great. Yeah. You know? But I do remember at one point when we were in Los Angeles... Uh we were in the William Morris offices and um we had this big screening in Los Angeles and everybody was coming, Gabriel was coming and Liam was coming and you know we were you know and there was a certain kind of movie executive whose whose name I won't mention. But we were looking to get get me this person, get me that person, is so and so coming and I turned to him and said, Look don't you think we need to paper the house? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, what if all these people don't show up? We need to get some, uh, you know, we need to get some other people. And he said, yeah, OK. And he turned around to his assistant and said, you know, Gemma, get me 100 laughers. And he kept on talking, blah, blah, blah. And I said, excuse me, what did you say? He says, get me 100 laughers, you know. He said, you, know, you, you know, you pay them $25 and they come and laugh at your movie. What are you talking about? I went, oh, okay. And uh, sure enough, the next day that we went to see the screening, there were a 100 of the most (laughs) morose-looking, old, very old, mostly Jewish uh, people (laughs) queued up. And anyway, we came in, and um, there was a great moment where we were waiting, and Mickey Rooney actually came to this screening. Did he? And the whole the whole, everybody was waiting, and we we're all, and we think, why are we waiting on the stage, you know, you know, we're waiting on uh, something, we're waiting on Mickey Rooney, Mickey's got to get his soda and his popcorn, he's in the foyer, and eventually the doors open, and Danny comes right to the front row, sits in this corner front row seat, and starts eating the popcorn and staring at the stage, you know, and <laughs> I'm thinking, God, this is bizarre, you know, anyway, Pete gets up, and they ask Pete to say a word, and, you know, Pete, we're all trying to be as worthy as possible, you know, and trying not to let people know what a great time we're having, because that's what you kind of have to do when you've got low-budget films. And uh, you'll never win anything, you know. But uh, anyway, Anyway, so we're all there, and Pete says something, and then I'm asked to say something, and Shirley-Anne feels there, who's lovely Shirley-Anne. And Shirley-Anne, they ask Shirley to say something, and um, Shirley starts walking towards the mic, and as she walks, I can see that the microphone cable has just wrapped itself round the heel of her stiletto. And if she takes another step, she's going to pull the mic down, probably fall over. So I reach out and grab hold and said, Shirley, like this. And as I grab hold hold of her, Mickey Rooney jumps out of his seat and he goes, let her speak! (laughs) Let her speak! (laughs) And, And we're all sitting there going, what the heck is going on you know and uh anyway so the show goes up and it's all it's all it's and we me and peter outside going go this is really bizarre isn't it and all the rest of it and shirley ann comes out and we after about 15 minutes and we go how's it going shirley she goes really well she goes but they're laughing in some very strange places (laughs) You know, you can imagine it, you know, titles.
0: Ha, ha, ha,
1: ha. Oh, anyway, uh, so <clears throat> anyway, it was a really fabulous time with Hear My Song. It was, a, it was a real success and still is. You know, I was in Ireland recently and I ran into a bunch of Americans and they all kind of remember Hear My Song. It's kind of, you know, it's shown, you know, around St. Patrick's Day every year. Yeah. It's, it's one of those kind of Irish films that people really took to their hearts. And, um, you know it's great fun so that that, that was a wonderful period uh, and uh, doing all that stuff Pete then went to Los, uh, Los Angeles and uh, you know and, and I didn't quite get Los Angeles I, like a lot of actors I, I didn't quite get it and like a lot of people I didn't quite get it because yeah. it's you know, it's only a great place to be if you're working there and you're working really hard and you know, it's yeah. it's great when you're working hard. But to to be around if you're in Los Angeles, you know, as an actor, you know, it's because you're not working because basically everybody's working elsewhere. They're working in New Orleans or they're working in Toronto or they're working in Vancouver yeah. or, you know, Seattle. So it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty tough town in that respect and uh I didn't really get it because um you know i didn't know whether there would be enough people there to sustain me really because you know people were so interested in money and there was no theater there to speak of and you know it's a completely different ball game i think and and anyway i i uh, you know by that stage i was i was married to anna and we had you know a couple of kids ted was there he was like 7 or 8 i think maybe a bit older actually and then madeline was about 2 and, um, <clears throat> so, you know, I was back in, I came back to London and kind of picked up and, you know, and in that kind of way that, that happens in your career, you know, you do something really amazing and then nothing happens. You know, most actors know this particular phenomenon, Yeah. you know, where you can <laughs> you do something, you think, Oh God, that's it. And then nothing happens.
0: Yeah. yeah. You know,
1: and you, 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 you sit around going, right. Okay. Better kick on again then, you yeah. know, better get on the case and
0: Stop back start from back the, from the bottom from rung, the of, the bottom from the rung yeah. of the ladder
1: again, you know, and, and in, because, you know, the business makes suppositions about people. It's like when people used to go to the RSC or go into the West End for a long run, you know, you could get lost for three or four years. People would just assume that you're, oh, I thought you were there, you know, and actors get lost now and again, I think, because of and sometimes because of a success like that, you know. But anyway, so that was good. And, uh, you know, that was a fabulous time. And, uh, you know, and then I got into directing for the theatre. I directed a lot in the theatre. I I've directed, uh, in particular, you know, I've been interested in Samuel Beckett's work because he went to school in my hometown of Inskillin. And we have a Beckett Festival there most years. And so did Oscar Wilde go to school there. So the, they, they were always kind of, you know, the, the bang of their kind of, uh, of who they were was always in the background. And, uh, so, you know, and Brian Friel's work I've been, you know, wor- working on for, for many years. And, uh, I really liked Brian. He was a lovely man. And, um, you know, so I've, you know, there's been a huge amount of variety, uh, in 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 you know what I've done, and then like you know out of the blue um as you know recently that you know this series happened called Line of duty, which is now about i think seven or eight years ago yeah. it I was, is. I
0: was I was thinking uh, the other day god how long have how long have we known each other I mean yes yeah. it, it is going back to that time yeah, which is crazy
1: yeah, it is crazy, yeah, it is crazy.
0: Because it started out as such a small little thing for us. Yeah. that We all invested and in, all knew yeah. how incredible it was, but that small bunch of us yeah. that were there from day one.
1: I was looking through some... I was searching for some work that I've lost. I don't know what. I don't know how I did it. So I was looking through all my downloads and all my stuff the other day, and I came across this cast list of that particular period. And there were the names of, you know, everybody like, uh, you know, Martin's character and uh, Vicky's character and so forth, and then just said, Superintendent Ted, you know. So he didn't, <laughs> actually a, didn't actually have a name at that point, you know. He didn't know his name was going to be Hastings or anything yeah. like that. So it was like, in those early days, as you say, none of us knew really where it was going to go or what was going to happen with it, but, you know, we could tell it was good and... Uh, you know, and was a great bunch of people like we, you, you know, yourself and Neil and Vicky and Martin and uh, Lenny James. You know how brilliant was Lenny, yeah. and uh, you know and Nigel. I mean Nigel Morton, you know Neil's character and great characters and all the rest of it. So uh, and, you know, and that was kind of coming full circle when you think of me and Neil going to that party. I know on that Saturday night uh, at, uh, to get into drama school, and here we were together. You know. Many, 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 many years later. (laughs) Many adventures later. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, doing Line of Duty. And, of course, we didn't know. I mean, it was only, as you know very well, probably about halfway through the second series that it really caught fire. And, And even episode one of the second series didn't get good numbers. And then suddenly halfway through, the numbers started going up. And it was touch and go whether we were going to get a second series in the first place. So thank God the BBC decided to, you know, to go with that. You know, it was great that BBC Northern Ireland got behind it, uh, Stephen Wright. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's been kind of one of those, for me, it's been an absolute, you know, game changer, godsend. You know, the the sort of thing that you really, you you would keep your fingers crossed that you would get, you know, because I'm 60 this year. So it's like kind of, you know, to get it at this stage of your career is such a gift. You know, a part like this.
0: I bet because you've had such uh, such an interesting career, doing lots of loads of diff- different things. And I was thinking about the all the years that I've known you, and I remember thinking, oh, we, "Well, Lady's finishing the acting now," and I remember saying to him, "What are you doing? Oh, well, I'm off to go and do the Brendan Behan thing, or I'm doing the Beckett Festival." You're always keeping yourself. Correct. If you're always doing something, yeah,
1: I think it's important for actors like like you know you're doing this podcast now. I think it's very important for actors uh, to stay in their creative head at all times. You know, you've got to keep uh, you know being no matter what you're doing. You know, you you know I know actors who who are really good at carpentry, for example, and will will go and or or they're good at painting. But you know, they'll do some something that they can put their creativity into. You can't let your creativity lie around. You can't wait for the phone to ring thinking that somebody's going to... You've got to get either right, you've got to get up and perform, you've got to do... Somehow, if you can, I mean, I know that it's difficult, but if you can, you've got to explore other things that you can do. And, uh, you know, it might be putting on a poetry uh, reading somewhere, you know, because those things are wonderful, you know. People love those events. And uh, at the moment, I've put together this incredible show. I think it's incredible where I've taken uh, T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland and I've broken it into four voices. And a friend of mine, Nick Roth, has written this new music. And I found the BFI uh, recently uh, put online uh, the first ever colour footage of London in the 1920s. And it's absolutely extraordinary. Petticoat Lane. You know the barges on the Thames, all that kind of thing, very, very evocative, and just at the right time for the for the for the poem when the poem is written, and I put all three things together, and it's really an extraordinary evening. You know, and art, after all, when when you when you when you after a while you realise that art is simply being able to make the connection between things. That's all it is making the connection between colour and emotion, making the connection between, you know, words and emotion and, the, you know, the visual connections. That they, If you can find three things that connect with one another, you, you know, and they may, you know, so you, it, it, it's not necessarily that you have to be original all the time. What's important that you can see how things slot into one another and complement one another and create a new whole if you like three things that you thought were whole in themselves you put the three of them together and suddenly bang something else happens you know and um so i find that really exciting and uh you know uh, there's no dough in it you know there's no but what there is is there's a great sense of creativity and creating and camaraderie and if you do manage to get these things together is it there's a great sense of achievement. And I think people, people really love it, you know. People love seeing, um, you know, for example, in the Beckett Festival, I do a, a play, that, one of the few plays that he wrote that he, he was asked to write called Ohio Impromptu, which is a, a really an, an incredible piece. And what we did with that was we get 48 people and put them on a boat in Enniskillen and we'd take them down to an eleventh century or thirteenth century monastery, ruined monastery. Yeah. And then we'd split them into two audiences of twenty four and we'd bring them into this very small room which we would have blacked off. And I would have we have a a screen that they look through, like, you know, confessional screen. Yeah. It's a piece of gauze and then inside off of off a kind of, you know, 12-watt battery. I've got two LED lights that come up on these two guys. That Beckett describes how they are, you know, and they both look like, I don't know whether you know who Edgar and Johnny Winter are. No. They're two, well, they're they're kind of a couple of albino blues guitarists. But these guys, it comes up, and they look like two Amish guys. They're in black, and they've got long white hair. And one of them is is looking out towards us, and the other one is reading from a book, and he's reading like a memory. And now and again, as he's reading, the guy who is looking out taps his hand on the table like this, and the guy stops reading, and then he goes back a bit and starts again. When the guy goes like that, he starts again, but he goes back a little bit. And this, it's really bizarre what happens. It's really interesting, you know, and the story... Is essentially about a man whose wife dies and he decides that's it. He's going to leave the place where he's been with her and he's going to go somewhere else and he's going to try and disassociate himself and have something new. But he realises he can't escape his history, really. He just can't escape that. It's a very,
0: very, you know... I do remember you talking about this. It's an amazing little piece. It's
1: an amazing little piece. And, And, you know, and... To have it on this island, it actually talks about being on an island. So to actually bring the people to the island and put them in there and it's dark, you know, and the whole thing happens in front of them. It's an extraordinary experience. And the thing is that, you know, sometimes for these experience, only 20 people see it. And they know they're the only 20 people to see it. Wow, so incredible instead,
0: for those 20.
1: Well, exactly. Instead of the kind of, uh, you know, the amphitheater experience, where yeah. you're, or, the, you know, or you're going to see a band and there's 60,000 people there and you're two miles away. Yeah. Here you are right on top of something that's really intense. And you know that it's a singular experience that, you know, that only 20 or 30 people are ever going to see this and it's over. So it's really special in, in that respect. So I love doing things like that. Uh, yeah. So the variety is the thing, I think, at the minute for me, you know, and I'm really lucky to have this big anchor tenant, you know, yeah. called Line of Duty that I return to every year. And, uh, so it, you know, it allows me then to, you know, take chunks of time off because I'm not, you know, I'm also not a workaholic, you know, I do like time off. I like yeah. to, to travel, you know, my wife, Anne is in Australia, we, uh, Australian. So we do like to go to Australia if we can every year, or at least every other year and visit her family out there and, and do trips. From there you know up the coast
0: or go to Tasmania or, yeah you know but that uh, in a way is very healthy to, to stop to stop work for a while you know yeah. to say no to this and to put your energies into something else for a while so then you can return you know restored yeah. and rejuvenated to tackle whatever's next yeah absolutely ad um, thanks so much for coming on because it's an absolute privilege to spend time with you
1: no worries Craig Probably. it's been a pleasure
0: thanks so much You're welcome. Don't say, don't say, I, I let you down on that one. That was a belter. Um, and did you think, I know, we, you know, we don't really talk about jobs that much. Did you think that we weren't going to talk a little bit about Ted and about line of duty? We had to, we just had to. And I think it's really beautiful uh, what AD said, you know, because he has been, he's been in this game for a long time. Um and he knows the ins and outs, and he's, a, he's just a joy, an absolute joy to know as a friend, and an absolute joy to work with. And I hope that this episode was a joy for you. Too much joy? I don't think so. Never enough joy. Anyway, look, that's it. Uh, let's keep it short and sweet this week, and I will see you next week. Until then, I've been Craig Parkinson, he's been producer Griff, and this has been the Two Shot Podcast. You take care, and I'll see you next week.